welcome to the Go Within podcast. My name is Yasmin and I'm so happy to be back behind the mic because it's been, I don't know how many months without an episode, but it's been a few for sure. So this episode I'm bringing you today, I've actually tried to record a few times as I go on to mention in the conversation. It's a chat with a very good friend of mine, Marisa, who really has a truly inspirational story of recovering from severe trauma. And this conversation is a chat about her journey from that severe trauma, which not only left her with a lot of physical pain and physical challenges, but also really impacted her mental and emotional well-being. And she tells the story of her many years journey to connect back with herself, heal her physical body, and also heal herself mentally and emotionally so that she can really live her best life, be the best version of herself, and ultimately discover that sense of connection to something bigger than herself, which she shares gave her so much happiness. So I think this is a story that's really relevant to all of our lives. I'm sure you will be able to relate to so many of the challenges that Marisa faced. And hopefully you will also relate to the success she had getting through that and all of the tools and encouragement that she found along the way. Hope you enjoy this one. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Are you ready? Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome, Marisa. Take three of this podcast episode. We have actually, hello listeners, we have actually tried to record this podcast three times, but... We, we had technical issues <laughs> and also an issue with my stomach in the first episode. But we came to the conclusion that now is the perfect time to share this episode with you because Marisa's story, as with all of our stories, it carries on flowing and we carry on growing and there's always more insights to share. So we feel like this is actually the perfect time because there's another little bit to add to the story since we last tried to record. So for those of you that don't know Marisa, Marisa is a very good friend of mine. We've shared a lot of experiences uh, spiritually over the past 10 years. And she's also the main chef of our retreats. So some of you know her from there. She's also hangs around Sanya quite a bit. (laughs) So if you've been to Sanya, you've probably seen her. She's the one with the curly hair. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mar, for taking the time. And I just want to tell the listeners why I asked you to come and share your story on this podcast. And the reason is because you've told your story many times on the retreat. And I feel like every time you tell the story on the retreat, it really touches people. And it touches me again, even though I've heard it so many times. (laughs) Every time you tell it, I'm still thinking to myself, wow, that's actually quite a story. And you've really had to come through so many different challenges along this part. So as always, it's these journeys of struggle that really inspire us and give us hope that we can come through our own challenges. So where shall we start? That is the question, really. Um, So you've had two very big accidents in your life. Um, I don't know if you want to go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about the first one or the second one, or maybe you just want to give us a little insight into you know, an overview of the change that you had. Okay. Um, I think I would like to start from my second accident because I used... Because my second accident has taken me to the healing of my first accident. And I believe that without the second accident, I would not have healed from the first accident because the first accident for me was... I. Uh, 
blocked it so well that it was like it wasn't me who you know had that accident so i think i'd like to start from the second accident okay let's start then and we'll go back to the and then we'll go back <laughs> yes. because that is how my healing really started from there Great. So tell us a little bit what happened. Maybe maybe you want to start by telling us a little bit about where you were at in life before the yeah. accident happened, like your state of mind, your well-being, etc. Yes, and I, I, I even explain a bit myself why I maybe it will help everyone understand why maybe I acted in such a way, you know. Um, the time when I had my uh, second accident, I was around 30... I think that the six years, thirty-six. It was at a time where I think I felt I had it all from the outside. You know, I had good job. I had many friends. I partied. <laughs> uh, I had a nice car. I traveled. I think from the outside, it showed that I really had it all. And I thought I was happy because I did what I wanted. I lived on my own. Um, my parents gave up on me, trying to control me. Um, but when I look back now, I realize that it was a very sad time for me because I numbed myself so well through the years that I almost had no emotions. Emotions only came if I drank, if I was on a high on something, then yes, I had quite a few emotions that came out. So it was the eve of, I think, 2011. I was with my friends. We were having like a mini party and um, we went to get the car from the car park. In Saint in Saint Julian's in Parcheville, and where I thought there was there were stairs, there was a hole. So I literally walked through a doorway without without any stairs. So my foot, my right foot went forward, and I just went straight down. That moment, it was like, um, I mean, falling down three stories. Probably it will only take. A few seconds but for me it was like half an hour because I saw my life passing um, passing I even thought of my first accident at that point and I said to myself no it can't be you know I'm having another accident this can't happen so anyway I felt something and so I, I, I remember I after I saw my life passing I called on to God, which at that time I didn't really, not that I never believed there is a God, because I always believed there is a God, but for me, strength wasn't come, I need. I didn't feel I needed strength from God, I was strong enough. And I asked God, like, help me. I felt like I had no control, and I felt something inside me telling me, like, turn on your right, and that's what I did. Anyway, not to go into detail about that those moments. Basically, I fell a height of three stories. My friends could not find me. Finally, one friend of mine found me and he went down the shaft himself. 
and um, they took me to hospital they took me home then went to hospital i had uh, let's just stop there because i think that's uh, <laughs> you, you went more into detail into this yes. part in the last retreat and actually you, you didn't go straight to hospital which i think is uh, quite yeah. a window into your state of mind <laughs> at the time yeah just trying not to um say too much about that moment but i think it is important because people tell me ma you're so unlucky but i feel i'm very lucky because when I felt stories and I left the premises before the ambulance came because I was telling them, no, I'm fine. You know, I'm coming to join you to the party. I still, in my head, was going to the party, you know, the after party I had with my friends. I said, no, don't worry, just take me home. I just need to, you know, they took me home. I told them, go, you know, really go. I'm coming soon, don't worry. But I remember after about 15, 20 minutes, I told my friend who was with me at my place, I told her, Lil, you need to call my cousin. I need to go to hospital. I don't know what I have, but I need to go to hospital. So my cousin came, took me to hospital, and I had, I mean, falling through three stories. I um, broke my leg in about 13 pieces. I fractured three of my discs, I dislocated my pelvis, I broke and fractured my pelvis, anyway, the lot. Um, so for about six, about around seven and a half years, I lived in a lot of pain, where it felt like when you go to the dentist and they hit the nerve for you, I was like that, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was very desperate. I had a lot of pain. I was on a lot of um, medication. They put me on morphine and I had to go on methadone to get off it. So I was not in a very good state. And. Uh, when I realized I was not in a good state, I went for a holiday to Thailand. And I was like on the most beautiful, perfect beach one can be. You know, all my friends were sleeping. I went out for sun sunrise. I sat down, I looked at the horizon. And that was the first time I prayed from my heart. And I said, God, if you really exist, save me, get me out of this misery I'm living. You, know? you mean the misery of the pain, the addiction to the pain medication? Yes, and the numbness I had because I was very numb. I mean, I loved, yes, and I made people laugh, but it was more of a... I can't really even explain it because... I loved, but it wasn't a real love. Today I realize what the what a real love is. You know, I loved, and uh, I had fun, but it is an artificial fun, and the love only lasts a few seconds, and the fun lasts as long as the high is. Then you're back to the normal life, the normal emotions, which were nothing. I had no emotions. So I prayed to God, I said, God, if you really exist, get me, find me a way. I could not live on pain, I could not live on methadone, because the methadone was not only to get me off the addiction 
of the morphine, but it was a way of controlling the pain. And when I got back to Malta and I went to the shop, Adrian told me, Adrian was my shop assistant, he said, Mar, um, client came, you had told her you wanted to meet someone to help you with your pain, he's in Malta. I said, okay, he told me, come on, call him, call him. He really pushed me and I called him. And uh, his name is Gabriel and I used to call him my angel Gabriel because he really helped me with the pain. He found out my problem and uh, had an operation, sorted it out. So basically there was a reason why you were still in pain six, seven years after the accident, right? Like you shouldn't yes. have been in pain. The pain helped me um all that pain made me realize that I can't do it on my own. But isn't the pain shouldn't have been there. There was a mistake in the operation yes, they had done initially. Yes, that Because yes, yes. it's not normal to live for six, seven years in this no, you know, intense pain. No, my orthopedic pain. surgeon at that time uh, trapped the flash of nerves between the fibia and the tibia. And they gave me a condition which didn't exist. So... I needed another operation where they broke both bones and released. So this angel Gabriel figured out that you had this, yes. these trapped nerves and then they had to re-break your leg to release these nerves. Yes, he straightened my back, mm. he strengthened, straightened my pelvis. Mm. And I think also, because uh, you're skipping out a lot of juicy details here. <laughs> you know I, the story. I know the story too. Well now. I think you also <laughs> decided you. to get off morphine at this time, yes. right? Just before. So just tell us a little before, bit about Yes, it. that was another crazy thing I did where I decided to get off the methadone because after the morphine, my body got dependent on it. And uh, I felt that if I remain on morphine, I'm going to die by the age of 50. You know, because I felt all my organs slowing down. I was putting on weight. You feel, you know, something is not right. So I said, okay, now let's stop methadone. And I did it my way. Not even at detox. I used to lie to them. Like, they used to tell me, where, which milligrams are you? I used to lie, you know, because I really tried my best to stop it as quickly as possible which was very painful and just before going through the operation where they're going to break your leg yeah okay <laughs> very wise <laughs> choice <laughs> anyway then i had to say the truth i had to go cold turkey and that was something which um when i think about it i say i don't know how i went through it you know about 48 hours cold turkey alone at home my choice mm -hmm. because I don't want anyone to see me in that state, but I did it because, as you very well know, I'm very strong-minded. And if I say I'm going to do something, even if it kills me, I'm going to do it. So you went through the operation without painkiller. You took painkillers just for the operation, but not for the... No, I couldn't take any painkillers because I had just stopped the methadone a few days before the operation, like mm -hmm. three days before. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't take any pedetine, I couldn't take any morphine, I couldn't take anything. So yes, it was Painful. without, without painkillers. And because I don't have a spleen from my previous accident, I had my leg with infections, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so after that operation, it, sorry, Thailand was before this operation? Yes, Thailand yes. was about a year before this operation. Yeah. 
So my my first answer, my first um, desire was answered. You know, physically I was getting there. It wasn't I wasn't yet there, but you know, at least I got rid step. of that pain, which I mean haunted me all the time. So yes, the first bit was done. That was December. So, but even after you sort of reduced your physical pain, there was still physical pain there, I believe, at that time. Yes, because I had a problem. The bone which was which needed to grow for three centimeters did not want to grow. Um, I still went out. I still drank. I still partied. I was not on methadone anymore. Um, but still, something was not quite... Still, I wasn't... Emotional. Emotionally, I was still not there. Mm-hmm. So what, what sparked the continuation of the journey at that point? Um, then, when I used to go to hospital, he told me that... if He gave me, like, an ultimatum of a month. That was June, that if the bone doesn't grow, they needed to do a bone drought, basically. And I said, why? But, you know, there's never an ending to whatever I have. And um, I had the appointment in July. In June, I was at Third Garden because that's where then it all started. And I was at Third Garden. It was a Sunday, day after Saturday. I had a I had a party on Saturday, so Sunday my leg was really bad, really swollen. And I met a friend, and she told me, "How are you?" I said, "Oh well, I can be better. Like you know, probably I need another operation." She told me, "Oh my God, really?" I said, "Yes." She told me, "Do you believe in Reiki and meditation? You know, and all." I thought at this point, I'll try anything that can help me. So she introduced me to someone else, who this person, um, Nikita, was the first, was the one that took me to my next level. And uh, she intro- basically she is the one that introduced me to meditation, and. Uh, she worked on my leg and um, I went for my operation, for my appointment and my surgeon told me, whatever you're doing, he said, just keep on doing it because the bone is growing finally, you know, so I said, okay, this thing that I'm doing is working. So this thing that you were doing at this point is some alternative healing and some meditation. Yes. And I was starting to change my... Uh, um, food lifestyle because I realized certain things were not good for what I have so it was the next step so how did you this is something that happens to a lot of people that we sort of have this old life and this old person who all of our friends and our family see us as and then we start <laughs> meditating, doing other things, and we kind of have a foot in two worlds, and sometimes it's not a very easy transition. Like, how did you feel at that time? Was it easy, or was there challenges there? There were very big challenges, but the challenges weren't as bad as how I was feeling, because physically, 
I was all right, getting better, but I wasn't there yet. Emotionally, I was so numb that if you, that nothing could really make me cry. I hadn't cried for years. Mentally, I was so tired because um, being a very strong-minded person, I controlled everything. I controlled my pain. I controlled my emotions. I controlled everything around me. So I was really tired. I mean, I couldn't, I had to look for something else to help me find a way how to live. So I kept it a secret, you know, meditation, because first of all, I didn't want to look like I'm a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) My family, like, you know, fully I'm out of control, you know. Partying. (laughs) Partying. And I remember my father, when I used to live at home, he used to tell me, you're a night flyer. You're never around during the night. During the day, you're sleeping. (laughs) So, yes, I kept kept it a bit of a secret. In fact, my friends, one particular friend, she used to tell me, can you tell me where you go on a Friday night? You know, you have a secret lover or something, because... (laughs) That you only meet on a Friday. So, yes, I kept it... uh, I kept it a secret for a while. But I remember meeting every Friday for this meditation, which I didn't feel anything, really. I used to close my eyes, then I open one, see the rest, like everyone is into meditation and I'm not feeling anything. But I left with a very sense of peace, which... It made me feel good. And after, and every time after meditation, Friday, I used to go home. I didn't used to go out and meet my friends because I didn't want to lose what I got from there. And that is my, how it all started with meditation. Um, I guess when we have that, I mean, I can relate to, you know, that first time you sort of feel that peace and that joy that comes not from being on this high and you know materially stimulating yourself but it comes out of nowhere it comes from deep within yourself and for me I also came from a lifestyle of partying and having fun and being the life and soul of the party and then suddenly I realized there's this other feeling and when I felt this I said I want more of this and then it was about how can I change my lifestyle so that I can have more of this? Because certain choices don't go together, right? No. You can't. At the time, I was smoking a lot of weed. I couldn't smoke a lot of weed. Yeah. <laughs> Numb myself, fry my nervous system, and then at the same <laughs> time, expect to come and feel deeper levels of peace in meditation, right? So you kind of yeah. start transitioning your, your lifestyle, yes. which in more is not easy at all. It's not easy because to do that, you have to totally isolate yourself. I mean, my circle of friends, which are very dear to me till today, and I still meet them today, and uh, everyone has changed his lifestyle. But at that time, I mean, I couldn't... I tried. In fact, I used to go to this Friday meditation, then go and one of my parties and outings and off abroad to another party where we used to go, you know, it wasn't working, you know, it was like, I had to choose basically either this or this. I think definitely at the beginning when you're still very sensitive, 
you know, after some time you you're strong enough in your new lifestyle to not be too easily influenced but when you're you're sort of a baby in this new lifestyle and yeah. if you go into the wrong environment it's very easy to just fall back into old habits i guess that's why just for a little time you need to isolate yourself just a little bit yes because the i mean i remember i'm a person that i like attention so you know when you get that att- when you have here and there and then you're getting that attention again you know so off I go again you know and because I was always the life of the party everyone's calling me why you're not coming why you're not coming you know hey, I'm coming for you so off I go you know well it needed just a few a bit of persuading and I'm off I go again but then one day um never happened to me. I mean, I was one that could take a lot. But one day, I somehow, I must have overdid it a bit. <laughs> maybe, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> maybe just a little bit. Doesn't sound like humor. No way. <laughs> and I remember I was in a very good state. I was on my own. And I prayed to God. I said, God, if you get me out of this, I promise you I'll never do this again. I mean, I'm sure we've all said it. So this was, you mean, at a party, you overdid it and you started not feeling good? Yes, I was abroad. I wasn't even in Malta. And uh, I knew that if I wake up, I wasn't sure if I was going to wake up or not, to be honest, because I closed my eyes, I slept. And I said, God, if if you wake me up, I won't do this again. And I was remembering some things that were said in meditation. And I was practicing them before I slept. Because I couldn't think about anything that could save me at that point besides that practice. And I woke up the next day. And I said, no, this can't, you know, I really can't live like this anymore. I came back to Malta and I was told that um, the spiritual teacher is coming to Malta who has, who teaches meditation, this meditation. And I remember I started corresponding with him through emails and um, he was guiding me through emails, what to do and how to make myself stronger. And I did, and I followed everything, and then I just... But then I really decided it's not this that life, I need this life. So then he came to Malta in December, and that is where my biggest change was, because my fear was, um, what when what will I do when I get the cravings again? Because... I mean, there were times I could not have anything for six months, for a year. Some, there was a time for two, three years. But then all of a sudden, it's like something um, either in the brain, I don't know what. But I just want it. I just want party clubbing, you know, and get back to that life. And that was my fear. How, how it's going to come soon. And... Um, I met our spiritual leader, Prabhu Dharmayasa. And um, the minute I met him, I knew that this person could help me. 
I don't know what it was, but I felt that he could help me. And he did. I had an experience with him where basically I felt my addiction going, literally going. I mean, I left the room with a sense that I knew that I will never touch any drugs in my life again. I felt it. So that was the next step. Chapter 53. <laughs> chapter so 53. chapter 34. <laughs> verse 12. <laughs> so, so at that point, you can say that maybe... That's when the emotional healing really started, right? Yes, that's that's when it really started. And, and what do you feel were some of the biggest changes? I mean, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about you know this transition from being more disconnected from ourselves, maybe being more trying to fulfill our needs materially, often feeling disappointed and hurt because life generally doesn't give us all what we want, and usually our coping mechanisms to deal with the pain of life are not really healthy and conducive to our our wellness. So there's this sort of before where we're maybe a bit disconnected and then we use all these different tools to find our connection. Maybe you can describe a little bit, I mean, you've already mentioned that you felt emotionally very numb, but how did that affect your life? So um, if I had to go back a bit, to my first accident okay because that is where my emotional block started okay the second the second um, accident I had a lot of physical pain the first accident I had physical pain but it was more where my emotion where I emotionally blocked myself and because I emotionally blocked myself I I went through life living, I went through life existing, not living it. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I existed, I did everything, but there was no um, connection to anything in life. To your real emotions, to you can say. No real emotions. I, I mean, if I had to talk about relationships, I mean, I always jumped from one relationship to another. I am very blessed and lucky that I always found people that loved me in such a way which I could never understand how anyone could love me the way I looked at myself. And I will tell you why when we get to Mm -hmm. it. Um, So I could never really love. (laughs) I mean, it sounds crazy because... People go into relationships and they get clingy and they get... I was the contrary. You know, don't love me. <laughs> because if you love me, I run away. You know, and that's what I did. There was a fear of intimacy, maybe you can say. Yes, I mean, I could not accept anyone loving me because now I understand why. Because I never felt that worthy of being loved because how can you love a a monster because that's how I used to look at myself you know? so let's 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 tell the listeners what happened in that first language uh, accident which brought you to the point where you related to yourself in that way yes so when I was 16 um, 
I was involved in a car accident and um, I was a passenger and what happened is the car crashed into a tree. I woke up five days later not knowing what happened and I didn't know what happened in those five days. All I remember was that I opened my eyes in a room that was very tiny, looked very yellow, and um, there was a lot of peeping and I had wires everywhere coming out of every hole I had in my body. <laughs> and the nurses rushed in, they injected me, slept again, and I woke up calmer. And uh, when I woke up, there was a nurse and she told me, you know, you were involved in a car accident. You're all right. You're going to be fine. Um, it's okay. Don't worry, you know. And uh, I, I woke up without memory, without knowing who I am, without knowing what happened. So I started asking a few questions, then a few Maybe 20 minutes later, my family came in. I, at first, I didn't recognize them, but then them talking to me, I started recognizing them. I remember my sister clearly like looking at me with tears in, his, in her eyes. And um, I'm pausing because I never felt, now that I feel I've... Um, made a closure with all that has happened with this accident, I still get emotionally because now I can remember the moments. Before, I don't remember how I felt. I remember, but I don't remember the feeling. Today, the feeling comes back. And as a 16-year-old in a bed with my family looking at me, trying to be strong for me, I remember I felt very guilty. I had a big guilt that I'm putting my family in this situation. So I decided I need to be strong for them. And, um, and uh, I was in this room on my own. Nobody could come and visit me. I couldn't understand why. I mean, I was very weak. And uh, they could only see me with my mother's permission. And I used to tell my mother, where are my friends? Why don't they come and see me? And she used to tell me, soon, soon, they'll come, soon, you know. So I realized something is not right. And I remember at that time I asked my boyfriend, I said, you know, I said, Aid, something is wrong with my face, eh? Tell me, oh no, it's all right. You have a bit of stitches, but, you know, nothing. Wow, you're still as beautiful as you were, you know. But I knew he was lucky. He was lying, you know. But I was so weak that I let it be. The day came when uh, they had to remove my face stitches. So I remember I was so excited that I was gonna have my face stitches removed, and I told them I want to keep them as a <laughs> memory. <laughs> I mean, don't forget, I was sixteen. So I thought of a sixteen. I acted like a sixteen, you know. And they looked at me and I said, like, and they told me, okay, you know. So they gave me this white cotton wool, really big, 
and they started cutting the stitches and the stitches were blue. So when you see 10, 20, 30, 40, and this white um, cotton wool is like getting all blue, you know, I told them, so my, I have a lot of stitches. I mean, I counted till 100 and I gave up. I, I let them, you know, go on. And uh, I knew at that time, I knew then that something was really wrong. I knew then why my friends didn't come and see me. I knew why, I, why no one could come in the room without anyone's permission. So when they were done, I said, all right, I'm going. Give me a mirror. Because there was no mirror in my room. They told me, no, Ta, we can't give you a mirror. You can't see your face. I said, no, it's my face and I'm going to see it. They told me, no, okay, then go, I'm going to run away. I told them, you know, you have to take me and see my face. Eventually, they said, okay, because they knew that I was going to do something, even if I had to jump out of the window, but I was going to find a mirror. So they took me out of the room and took me to the communal bathrooms. And I said, I'm going to say it exactly because it was so, I remember it so well as if it was yesterday. If anyone remembers St. Luke's, the toilets were horrible. It was like a big room. You go in, on the left, there's a lot of sinks with mirrors and opposite there were the toilets. So I went in front of the mirror. I looked at myself and I didn't see me. I saw a monster, most ugliest monster one could ever see. So that is what I saw myself till not a very long time ago, a monster. And how did you cope with that as a 16-year-old? Because even if it happened to you at this age, it would be a struggle to deal. Obviously, yes. at 16, you have no tools, no emotional maturity. Yes, and at that time, no psychologist existed, you know, nothing. So, to be honest, I don't know how I did it. <laughs> but um, I remember one particular moment in my room at home. Because what was happening is I couldn't get out of the house. People looked at me. People spoke about me as if I wasn't there. You know, things like, my God, how ugly she is. Oh, my God, look what he did to her. Anyway, these comments as if I wasn't there, but I was hearing everything, obviously. So every time I used to hear something, I used to run back home, grab one of those little mirrors that I had to use to clean my face, break it, go to the pharmacy opposite by another one so that my mother don't realize. And it went on for maybe a couple of months. Because then I had to have a brain operation, which also was very traumatic. Having your face looking like a monster and having your hair shaved. So in all the trauma in itself, physically, not just the pain of the brain, which for many for weeks after the operation, I had to learn how to sit down, walk again, and coordination. Coordination. But I think that wasn't the hardest bit for me. The hardest was my face, because everyone could see that. 
the rest I knew about and I could do that. But my face, I couldn't hide it. Like I hid everything else. So I decided that Marisa won't exist anymore. And as a 16 years, a 16 and a half I was, because it was a couple of months later, I visualized myself. I put myself in a box, in a tin box, logged it, and I threw the key in the sea. And I decided to um, create me. So she didn't exist anymore. So that is the emotional, um, the emotional uh, trauma I I lived with. I created someone who was very strong. Nothing broke me. I cried if I see, uh, if I if something is hurting a child or a dog or an animal. But everything else, I had no emotions. And that was also when the partying also came in as a bit of a coping mechanism. Yes, I mean, drugs were all, were always a bit of part of my life. I mean, weed, uh, I think we all started a bit early, you know. Not all, but many. <laughs> but many. <laughs> so, yes, it started with weed. But then um, I needed something stronger to be able to face the world, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And one one time well, where I was very vulnerable after my brain operation, someone I trusted very, very much um, gave me a line of coke. And this line of coke made everything go away. I felt good with myself. I didn't need to look in a mirror. Confidence. Confidence, you know. So that became my uh, medicine. And um, I was on it and off it for many years, basically. I mean, this is, you know, just such a relevant point to our time because, no. you know, alcohol, tobacco, exactly. drugs, they're so prevalent in our society. And many of the times we don't realize how much we're using them as a coping mechanism, as a tool mm-hmm. to get through this emotional pain that life gives us when you had it in a very extreme way. But even light traumas can lead to people doing this. Yes. Um, and what I find interesting is that sometimes we get to this point where we say, I want to stop, I want to quit because we, we know, but we don't have something else that's going to fill that gap and help us cope and help us deal with the pain. And that's often then when we just end up going back because there's no new tool that's going to help us deal with this. Spot on. So I think you know the, <laughs> the story of this healing from the monster. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know this this your story has so many tangents we could we could go down. Um, but I think it would be really nice to go into more depth the story of how you came to heal this dynamic because it's quite fresh, quite relevant, and. And yeah. quite a beautiful story also. <laughs> so when did you first put the name monster to it? When did you first realize that that's how you related to yourself? So I think, I'm not sure if I was on a retreat or we were a gathering together. I don't remember exactly, but, you know, we do the 
angel to the light cards, and cards. the shadow cards. So anyone who's been on our Sanya retreat or done some <laughs> events at Sanya, you might have come across uh, this famous deck of cards that I have called an archetype cards. And basically half the deck is light archetypes and half the deck is shadow archetypes. And archetypes are basically just patterns of emotions or patterns of behavior that we have in our lives. I always use the example of the mother and the addict to help people to recognize because these are two of the most common archetypes. So a mother in any part of the world, be it Gozo or Austria or Jamaica, all mothers have a similar set of characteristics. They're all loving, they would sacrifice themselves for their children, nourishing, etc, etc. And the same with a maybe not so positive archetype like the addict or the thief or there are there are loads of them <laughs> they're not very nice <laughs> that's amazing how these cards you know no matter what you're thinking at that time when you're choosing your card you know and you say you think a card is coming because that's where you think you're heading to you know and it just this card comes and hits you in the face i mean it always hit me in the face so you, you don't actually choose the card but you pick it face down so you don't know what card you're choosing so it's left up to uh, yeah. the universe <laughs> to give you the card that you need. And actually we have very beautiful experiences with it. It's always the, the most relevant card that seems to come up. Yes. So at some point, I can't remember what it was at the retreat or... It was the first time I used these cards. The first time I used these cards, I got the monster, which at that time I really did not understand why I got the monster. In fact, it didn't make sense to me. And the uh, light card was Mother Earth. Earth Mother. Earth Mother. And as well, I mean, I, it's so deep that at the time, in the beginning of this journey, I didn't realize exactly why I got those cards. And then through, other, through the retreats, I got different cards. I never got that card again. And the cards that I got were cards that I was healing from between my first accident and the second accident. Because the first accident, made, I made myself into this person that I harmed myself in so many different ways. But then the cards were helping me to heal from those. And the last retreat, no, I can't go to the last retreat. I need to go to India. Yes, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> we have to make a diversion in the healing journey to India. January I mean, 2019. These past 10 years have been, um, has been like having a relationship with myself. Okay. Because I never had a relationship with myself. I had relationship with really no one, I think. I had relationships, but... You're experiencing them to a new depth, you can say. So, yes. So these past 10 years, I started having a relationship with myself. And having a relationship with myself is really difficult. <laughs> We're usually the <laughs> hardest person in the world to have a relationship with. I've realized I'm moody. I mean, people say, I mean, you're so moody. I'm not moody, but yes, I'm very moody. I'm very stubborn. I'm very, you know, if I say, this is it. This is going to be. So it's not, it wasn't easy. 
trying to um, love myself and uh, finding out who I was meant to, who I am really, you who know. That girl that you locked away in the box. I had to is... take her out and um, take her out, put her back in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so many times. Eventually, you know, I let her out. I never took her in again, but it wasn't something that was very easy to do. And um, beginning of this year, as you very well know, went to India. <laughs> and uh, when I mention India, you laugh because <laughs> I was so excited about going to India. And I, you were telling me, better calm down, Mar, you know, India is not what you think. So I was trying to prepare her basically because she was on a high of this is going to be an amazing trip and it's going to be all great and lovely and I was telling her more, okay, just calm down, (laughs) tone it down because whenever you go on these journeys of self-discovery, as much as there is moments of intense beauty, you're also faced with a lot of stuff that you have to let go of and you know, we, we seek this sort of spiritual enlightenment when actually the, the process is quite destructive and it's the destruction of all the ego and all the thoughts and negative patterns that we have. So, uh, so <laughs> my <yeah>. premonition came <laughs> through. So off we went to Delhi. <laughs> and Delhi was... India, I think only the first couple of hours were really great. Great in a sense where... You were still on your high. I was still on the high, you know, we had the meal, we had the chai, we had, you know, and taking selfies and really happy about it all. Then we met our spiritual leader as well, the teacher, who who we went to accompanying him on this journey. And then it all started. We spent almost two and a half weeks and it was like we've been there for six months and we hardly spoke. We went from one holy place to another holy temple, to another holy river and to another sunset and then to another sunrise. And then to a place where a lot of people dreamed to be there, you know, which was the Kumbamera. And it was the coldest place I've ever felt in my life. And... Um, for me, when I feel cold, I become very vulnerable because the cold hurts me, hurts my bones. I can't stand the cold. So it was like I was really put like like an onion. I had nothing to cover me, you know, so... Out of comfort zone. <laughs> uh, that's the one, that's the word, yes. And... Um, And one experience after the other. I mean, if I had to explain everything, I will never finish. But I will. I will only. I will uh, mention one one uh, moment where we were in Varanasi, and if anyone knows about this place, it's where people go to die there because your karma is cleaned. It's uh, considered a, a holy city, a very holy city, to, you know, so and it's a very old India where like you see the real India and you see everything where many people won't, won't be able to uh, um, understand and be able to um, 
see it because it can hurt physically. But for me, all that was like nothing. It was the um, the feeling that this place was giving me that um, made me see myself in such a deeper way. And one time we went, we woke up really early, went for sunrise on the river. And we were going out, we're preparing the candle with the offering to the river. And I remember I felt this calling, the river was like, uh, I mean, these things, I'm not one that really believes in a lot of things, but once you experience them, you realize they are true. And I felt something that was telling me, look in, look in the river. And I look in the river and I see my face. And I see my face and I see my scars, which I can draw them and I know exactly where they are. And they were falling off my face. And I just stared at the river. You know, and I was seeing them, seeing my scars walk, falling off my face. And then when they were all gone, you know, I felt the need to wash my face. And I had a moment of like relief, of crying relief, you know. And uh, I wasn't healed really there. I think it was an opening of a breakthrough, you know, and I realized how much um my face affected me you know i could cope with my broken bones i could cope without a spleen i could cope with my brain operation i could cope with anything but my face was what um numbed me maybe it was the deepest trauma it was actually that emotional yeah, that emotional scar. That was the most, yes. Because me as a person, I can take anything which is physically, you know. And um, I mean, in a way, those those emotional scars are what create that problem with the relationship with ourselves. I mean, in your case, it was through your facial scars, but other people have it through many other things. Yes. Like physically, when we're emotionally whole, we can deal with practically anything. In fact, you know, there are ultramarathon runners who put themselves through ridiculous amounts of pain just to cross a finish line. Exactly. Um, but they do that because emotionally it's meaningful for them and they, they have mm-hmm. that uh, yes. capacity, right, to kind of embrace the pain. But in fact, a lot of ultramarathon runners say that, you know, they get to a point in the race where the emotional pain comes out Mm -hmm. and -hmm. whether they will finish the race or win the race comes to how they deal with seeing themselves Mm -hmm. and the negative thoughts that come out and the self-conception the self-connection and all of that so I mean this story is just a really good example of how it's not the physical which is really our biggest baggage but those emotional scars and pains that we really need to heal and often it's hard because we can't really see them no you you can see the broken bone but you can't see but you can't see the relationship it. with yourself, how you think about no. yourself, unless it reflected in life. But yes. usually we don't want to see too too much. And when you label yourself something, you say, I am this, you believe it so well that you think everyone is seeing you in that way. You know, and they can tell you because you used to tell me. My God, where are your stitches? You have no stitches, you know. 
And I say, yeah, sure. You say that because, you know, you're my friend or you're my whatever. I mean, I meet so many people who, when I say that you have scars, they're like, what scars? <laughs> I really, we don't see them, but you obviously see Now them. I can understand that. Yes. But, I mean, every mirror I looked at, I saw that monster. You know, so I never looked in the mirror. I looked in the mirror, but to see how I looked, but not, I didn't look at myself. Because you can look at in the, you can look in the mirror and you look at yourself. Or else look in the mirror and you don't see yourself. I never saw myself, you know. It was like, just to see how I looked like, what I'm dressed, if my hair is all right. Which if your was, lipstick is in the line. Yeah, and the lipstick is in the line, which it never was. <laughs> So, um, what what was the next step? I mean, I know the next step. So let's tell <laughs> the audience the next step. <laughs> yes. Um, came back to Malta from India. And uh, I couldn't understand what happened to me. You know, I was going through... It was like I was rebelling inside, you know. Um, rebelling in a good way. Because... The emotions were coming alive, you know, but I don't, I wanted them to come alive, but it was so difficult to um, integrate with them. You know how many times, you know, I sat in front of you and you used to tell me, no, you're too strong headed, let it go, you know. And because integration, once you do it, then it's good, but till you get there. It's the moments before integration are the hardest. Are the hardest, you know. So yes, I went through summer 2019 roller coaster. <laughs> so maybe we can sort of fast forward to October 2019. <laughs> yes, October 2019 went to another trip, which wasn't planned. Let's let's. Ah yes, that. okay, okay. So <laughs> You know my story so well, you can you sit on this really chair. <laughs> <laughs> sit instead of me. Yes, so we went on our last retreat that we did, which was in October, um, two days after my birthday. And um, every year, I hated my birthday because my birthday was very close to my car accident. My birthday is on the 1st of October and my car accident is on the 13th. So when I get my birthday, I get all, you know, should we, uh, that day, you know. And I always made sure on the 13th of October, I'm out high somewhere. <laughs> and we had this retreat at Bahia. And we were doing the cards. And when I got the card, I got monster again. That was the second time I got the card. The first time I, I think ever... it must have been the first retreat that we did the first card. Yes, probably. I don't remember when I... But it was the first time I did the card. I got monster. And the classic was she turned over the card. And I looked at that card and I went, that card again? And she went, no, no, I never picked this card before. No. <laughs> <laughs> Took you a few moments to, to remember. Uh, yes. And I just said, monster, why did I get monster, you know? As if I got that card, I told you, no, Tom, you're mistaken, I didn't get that card. No, you got that card, you told me. 
And when I read what it means, I still did not realize, you know, I was finding everything. In fact, I think I remember you saying, uh, no, I don't know why I got this card again. I think I already dealt with this. Um, I'm not really finding it resonating. <laughs> yes. But funnily enough, um, actually just... Mom, a day or two to, before. It was actually just before we went to the retreat. The same day, we went to the retreat the, where we going were out of here from the Yes, north. I was just leaving Sanya and I wanted to go up and visit my grandmother. And I, I said to, to Marisa, please just come up to my grandmother. I just want to give her some fruit before we go. And we got into the lift. And as soon as we stood into the lift, she glanced in the mirror, saw her face and just went... I don't know your exact words, but some of them like, are I, I hate mirrors. How I hate mirrors, especially the ones in the lift. And you looked at me and you said, I didn't say anything. I just noted it. <laughs> you know, she as usual, she didn't say anything. She just let me... I kept it in my pocket at the right moment. <laughs> and when she doesn't say anything, that means something is going to come out at the right time with the right... <laughs> so as soon as she she said, ah, oh, this monster, I, I, can't, uh, I can't relate to it. I just... I reminded her of that moment in the lift. It was just, you know, two days before, because this is the thing that it's so easy for us to miss how we relate to ourselves. But in yes. that moment, you're not thinking it in the lift. You're like, oh, I hate mirrors. I don't want to look at myself. Yeah. But then to ourselves, we think like, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> and she told me, you hate mirrors. I mean, what did you call yourself? You know, would you... All of a sudden, when she told me, when you got that out of your pocket, <laughs> I, it's like the card came to life. And when it started, I told you yes, because I always felt that I looked like a monster. The monster that Michael Jackson had in the thriller, because it was in 1984 and it had just come out that video and in that video I had a lot of monsters that were coming out of the tombs. <laughs> so yes, and I said, that's right, I'm the monster. You know, I always looked at myself as a monster and um I had to just also take a moment here to just say that you know credit to you because yeah, we host retreats together, myself, Marisa, sometimes my sister, Larissa, different members of the team. And you know, the way we host the retreats is not like we have any answers and we're trying to give that answer, but we come together as a community. I also picked cards that day, which really helped me heal a particular dynamic that I was struggling with. And it takes quite a lot of courage to be vulnerable in a group and admit, yes, you know, yes. I see myself as this monster and you know, to, to really be vulnerable and... yes and share that is, is very special and takes a lot of courage. And I think that's one of the most special things about the retreat, that we create that space where everyone feels safe to say, oh, I'm the monster, I'm the thief, I'm the lazy bones, I'm the whatever that darkness is. And then we just allow the, the light cards to really become a bigger part of who we are instead of being burdened by those dark cards. So Yes, because we believe that being vulnerable means you're weak. But really and truly, being vulnerable is being strong. I mean, this is something that I struggled with. So, and I'm sure a, a lot of people think that by being vulnerable, you know, you're being weak. But it's easier to be strong, to look strong and pretend and live like, you know, you can conquer the world. I think also... 
there aren't that many spaces in this world which are safe for you to be vulnerable because a lot of people misuse your yes. vulnerability, right? They'll, they'll keep that in their pocket, but for a nasty reason that when you're in a fight, they'll bring it out yes. and say, oh, you're a monster instead of bringing it out to help you and support you and love you and, and help you see your own light. So in a way, I can understand why we have all of these pains, but this is why we so desperately need to find spaces and people that we can trust to let that out because so much great healing can come out of it. And saying this is for the first time in my life, I see my vision, you know, because my vision in life is, okay, I'm on this journey. I've healed my my most traumatic life situations and I can say today that I'll finish I'll finish the story of the monster so I can mm-hmm. say this because it means a lot to me and um, after that retreat where I saw the monster and I shared with everyone in a way that I never shared like that in such a vulnerable way because as I said, for me being vulnerable, it means I am weak. But being vulnerable made me softer, made me, you know, what you always, you know, till today, when you look at me, you tell me, Ma, you look so much better, you know, not always like nothing can break you and nothing. And it's true because when you feel, when you come to the stage of where you can be vulnerable, you feel you can um, communicate in a deeper level with people. I never had a problem with communication with people, but being like this, there is another level where you can reach out, you know, through vulnerability. That is, a, in a way, it's a beautiful gift that one can do. You know, and after that retreat and went to Bali, my last trip which was unplanned, and off we went again. <laughs> you and I on this journey, and went to our ashram there, and I remember we had a free day before things were going to happen in the ashram, and we went to get some things that we needed. And um, as we were walking, I told you, so yes, I need to find. I need to buy a mirror, because I don't have a mirror in the room, <laughs> and it came out so naturally. Like it was something like you know, I need to buy water. As soon as I said it, you know, I told you, no, I'm buying one of those mirrors, the ones I broke so many times. You know, and at that moment, I realized the liberation that I that I finally got. You know. Because I always told everyone, no, I'm a free spirit, you know, I'm free, I'm free. Literally and truly, I was not free. I was a prisoner of my own self. Today, I can say I am free because I have let go of all these, you know, and went within, healed them all, and today I am free. Mm-hmm. Just be you careful know? about saying that word all. <laughs> because uh... I know something else comes up, eh? <laughs> It's yeah. always, but this is the beauty of integration is that we yeah. feel like it's all gone and we feel so whole usually you know something else comes along <laughs> a few months later but enjoy the, the feeling of all for now <laughs> yes. 
But it's also the beauty of it, right? That it's a never-ending yes. journey going deeper and yes, deeper and deeper. Yes, it is. And I forgot to mention something and it's very important because from the physical went very straight to the emotional. But the physical, I was, I mean, doctors told me that by the age of 50, I'll be in a wheelchair. You know, today I'm 52. And this morning I went for a walk and a jog. You know, so when we decide to uh, go within and find our weaknesses and find what is holding us back from life to live, we heal even physically. You know, so when the doctor said, no, you'd be in a wheelchair, when I proved them wrong. So that was another big. I think we also need to to put a bit of a more highlight Mm -hmm. (laughs) onto the role of our teacher in all of this. Yes. Um, Because, you know, we're telling this story and, you know, um, we're sort of glazed over his part in all of this, but actually without him, none of this would have happened. happened. Um, And, you know, this is also a contentious issue with society. We we tend to resist spiritual figures of authority. We're, we're fine with other figures of authority. This morning I was having a chat with my dad and uh, he's part of this NGO called Rotary. And he was mentioning how the world president of Rotary, when he walks into a room, he mm-hmm. sort of gets bombarded, right, of people trying to go up to him and shake his hand. And he was saying, oh, it's a bit, um, mm-hmm. you know, there is that kind of dynamic, right? And in that case, it's completely normal, Right, yes. the his rotary is the same, like if the prime minister walks in or yes. you know, a celebrity or whatever. But as soon as it comes to a spiritual teacher and people are acting with that same dynamic, we think, oh, this is a cult, this is brainwashing, this is something yes. so negative. And it's created a lot of misunderstandings around the role of, yes, of the spiritual did. teacher. So I've always liked to, I've shared many times, obviously, about Prabhu on this uh, podcast and on my particular experiences with having a teacher and how much it's helped me. But maybe you can just, you know, mention a little bit his role in this. Yes, my journey started with him. And every journey and every breakthrough I've had, he was always present there. He never told me, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. You know, he always told me, he always, he gave me the tools. Then I used them. And um, I could, I was able to use them because I did my practice. I meditated. I did what we call sadhana, which is five hours meditation a day at the ashram where um, you wake up in the morning before sunrise, two hours meditation, one hour at noon, two hours before sunset, you don't leave the ashram, no internet, you eat what's there. And doing that has helps you go deeper within. And these are what he taught us these were the tools he gave me and I followed him and um, till today if it wasn't for him my addiction is not gone and um, I won't be running and I won't be free from all these traumas so 
There is no brainwashing, I can assure you, because <laughs> nothing and no one can brainwash me. You know, I think it's it's also one of the the most beautiful things about having that uh, teacher is that the teacher is very connected, right? We, especially when we're in the beginning, we go in and out, right? Like we're going to meditation on Friday and then we're parting on Saturday. We're we're flip flopping between these two worlds, and when we're left to our own devices, it's very easy to just go off the deep end. And parting on Saturday becomes also parting the next Friday instead of meditation. And then so that connection that we've built up, it's not that easy to keep hold on it, right? Because we need the discipline and whatnot. And when you have a teacher, there's always that feeling that he's sort of pulling you back into that spiritual inspiration and into the motivation to do your practice. And then that practice leads you to the realizations and the opportunities and even the desire to travel for spiritual purposes and forgetting to know yourself instead of what we usually do, which is travel to enjoy ourselves, which is very different from traveling to get to know yourself. Yes, because traveling, enjoying is lasts for a bit. When you travel to um, deepen your spirituality, it's something that grows, you know, and um, it makes you want more of it. And I personally believe that we all need guidance and I'm very lucky that I have found um, my spiritual guidance with Prabhu and with his ashram in Bali and uh, we're very blessed that he comes to Malta and stays here with us and uh, if it wasn't for him none of this would have happened to me yeah and so of course it's a much harder journey without without guidance along the way yes if i didn't have him i don't think much i don't think i'm sure i'm not here because the world pulls you you know and when you're going to have a breakthrough into your emotions and to heal you have you feel like um you feel down there Pulling you down. So it's easy to go back, you know. But when you have a guidance and when we have um, each other, we can help each other. And then you find yourself, hey, I'm better than I was ever, you know. So I am at that point where I've never felt so good in my life, you know, and... I live on a high. <laughs> natural high this time. On a natural high, you know. <laughs> when I meet my friends and they tell me, ah, of course you don't take anything, you're always on a high, you know. But I work at it, you know. It doesn't just happen. And uh, it's so worth it. You know, it's so worth every second of, you know, pain and challenge and this to become a better version of who we are, because this is who I am. I'm still the same. I'm still, you know, talk and bubbly and up to something. And I'm still crazy in my own good way now, you know. So I haven't changed, really. I just became a better version of myself. I'd love to just also say something that I see a lot in people that come to Sonia who are struggling you know, with either trauma or difficult life situations, that sometimes it's very easy to fall into the trap of being a victim of our life, of saying, like, poor me, and also, why should I stand for this? For, for example, this is something that very 
uh, often happens within family dynamics, right? Let's say you have uh, a father or an uncle or a sister or a brother who bothers you and you feel like they're constantly um, taking advantage of you. We kind of in this modern society have this mantra that's like assert your boundaries, do what's right for you. And it's a bit, I mean, I understand it at the same time, but I think, you know, coming from the perspective of realizing that all challenge has a purpose and can help you grow to be a better person makes that reliance on just always asserting the boundary not quite so simple. I don't know if you have any thoughts of that, because obviously having these two accidents, you would have been totally justified to say, why me? You know, there is no God. Why Why should I have to face this? But there was yes. some part of you that didn't let that. I mean, I had those moments where I used to, you know, pray to God, you know, like, take me. I mean, why am I living? You know, why did you do, why is all this happening to me? You know, especially when the second one came and I was in so much pain, I couldn't even you know, walk to the bathroom and I didn't want anything, you know, like bedpans and all that stuff, you know, not, no way. So I used to walk, crawl to the bathroom and I used to say, you know, why me? And um, it's easy to even end your life because you feel there's no purpose, you know, what am I doing? Living on on a sofa, waiting for everyone to do things for you, you know, when I am someone that I hate anyone doing things for me because I want to do them myself, I'm very hyper. So yes, you do get those. But I don't know, something inside me always, I had moment. I had those moments, but then I had those moments where I knew sometime, someday, one day, I'm going to get out of this. But I had no idea how, when, you know, so... So that vision of a future you out of the situation gave you that fighting spirit, maybe to not let yourself just give up. Yes, because, I mean, I am a person that I do have that fighting spirit because um, even if it has nothing to do with accident, even if it's something I want to do, even if it's sports, or even if I get into doing something, I have that fighting spirit that I want to win. So I wanted to win. I wanted to get out of this. And this is why I prayed from my heart on that beach in Thailand. Because deep down, I knew there was a way out. I had no idea how, but I knew. And because I finally surrendered to the fact that I couldn't do it, it happened. Because I always did things for myself. I think we need to break that down because that was quite a, quite a statement there. You said, when I believed, when I stopped believing that I could do it is when I managed to do it. Exactly. Can you explain? <laughs> <laughs> Someone listening, I'm thinking, what? When she stopped believing is when she managed? How is that possible? Yes, because I believed in myself that I could conquer anything in life. I could conquer my pain, which I did many times, you know. Um, I also made sure that no one hurt me. 
I could do that. You know, uh, if I wanted something, I get it. I mean, if I put my mind on something, I get it. That's how much I believed in myself. But there comes a point where you're tired doing everything yourself. You know, you get tired because you don't have that power. That power is not mine. That power comes from something which is higher than me. You know, and if you're not going to connect to that higher power, no matter you can look at it the way you want to, you know, it could be through any type of God or nature or whatever, but there is a higher power. And when my spiritual teacher gave me that higher power, then everything started to work out for me. So I don't know if I explained myself. Beautiful, really. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I mean, this is, actually our teacher always says that your teacher is just the wire, right, between you and the source of the power. And we just need to plug ourselves in. Um, But we need that wire that connects us. But then once we have that connection, when we rely just on our own strength, it's so limited. When we connect to that strength that's so much bigger than us, then our strength and our power and our depth of love is infinitely And I would like to add something. When we do it with our own um, power, if I may say that, um, there is anger. There is bitterness, there is quite a few negative emotions, you know, that if it doesn't come my way, I get angry. You know, if something happens, I become bitter. But when you are connected and the power is not coming from me, but it's coming from my higher power, there's no anger in anything, you know. I remember when we were at... um, bubble and uh, this person came on to me and she told me can I ask you something and I said yes she said can you tell me what is your secret and I smiled you know I said what secret you know she told me you are so calm and so peaceful you know even the way you explain and the way you talk and the way you smile she told me I came here to the stand because of your smile And I looked at her, I said, it's really no secret, you know. I said, I have a tool that uh, my my, my spiritual teacher has taught me, and that is meditation. You know, and meditation has made me so peaceful and so calm. You know, when I meditate, because there's praying and there's meditating, I mean, the difference is when you pray, you're talking to God. When you're meditating, you're letting him, you know, talk to you. I say, God, it could be the higher power, whatever you you look at it. So when you have that connection and you are letting yourself be filled with that connection, you know, there is only peace. So that's the difference between... (laughs) I think that's a great place to bring this... Land this plane, bring this conversation home. Yes. I think, you know, this, this, thank you so much for sharing this story because that is really, 
a microcosm of what we are all aiming to experience, that journey from disconnection, lost from ourselves, to that spiritual connection and connection to ourselves. And that connection with ourselves and that connection with God are inseparable. We can't be connected to God if we're lost with ourselves. And we can't be connected to ourselves when we are lost with God. I also Absolutely. believe that. So I think your story is, is a really big example of a, a beautiful hero's journey and that the gifts of going within are really, really bountiful. And yes, it's hard sometimes and of course there are challenges and, you know, six or seven years of unnecessary pain and accidents <laughs> and whatnot. But I think it's also a reminder to not let it get to that point where you do need to fall three stories or we do, you know, we, the universe is always giving us these gentle wake up calls and so we don't need to always wait for the, the, the one to knock us out. I mean, sometimes that's our journey and yeah. we accept it, <laughs> but I see for myself, you know, sometimes it's very easy to just ignore those calls to go within and just let yourself flow through life without too much trouble. But when we do go within life, uh, gets better and gets deeper. And it's the best relationship you can have with yourself. I mean, today, I have my... I argue with myself, you know, I... Uh, many times, I mean, I do what I don't want to do. You talk to yourself do. as well? Huh? You talk to yourself? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's not say that on camera because they might come for you. <laughs> so, Mark, thank you yes. so much. Um, if there's any any closing message you have to say to our audience or maybe one one message you would try to remind them that is important on to encourage them on their own inner journey? Um, I know it's not easy. I know it's not easy to um, face yourself because that was the biggest challenge I've ever done with myself. And I think that what helped me most um, throughout my life was going into nature because, I mean, I'm a sea lover, who knows me? I mean, I practically almost live on a beach today. And my house is so close to it. But I've realized that nature has helped me to never lose that bit of connection that I had. Because that bit of connection um, helped me um, accept that I needed help. You know, and today we have these retreats. We have Sanya, which is a safe place to be. I mean, don't feel that um, asking for help is a weakness because it's not. You know, I know that it's difficult because I was one of those. But today we have a place where we, on purpose, we have this place so that it is easy for whoever out there is hearing me and is going through any type of, you know, traumas or any type of emotional disturbances, whatever, come here. You know, we're very, I mean, we're genuine. We're not going, we're not going to judge you because we've been there. You know, so this is my message. Don't be scared to ask for help. You know, don't let yourself go really rock bottom to be able to, you know, pull that hand up for someone to reach it.
Thank you so much, Et Made. <laughs> and if any of you want to taste Marisa's beautiful uh, home-cooked meals, which premiere on our retreats, <laughs> you're welcome to join us next May. Thank you so much for listening. I'm really happy to be back behind the mic after a few turbulent months of podcast recording. So if you do have any feedback or would like to share your thoughts, reach out. It means so much to me to hear that people are listening and that these stories are creating ripples and touching hearts out there. So I do really appreciate that if you can. And yes, go within. Blessings for your journey. See you next time. Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. My friends still rave about the Prosecco I brought last year. Let me help make your Friendsgiving unforgettable. Bordeaux is one of the world's most popular red blends, made from Cabernet, Cab Franc, and Merlot. It also makes the perfect gift for your picky boss. Having turkey and all the fixings? I suggest an easy-drinking Pinot Noir. For white drinkers, try an unoaked Chardonnay. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers! Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. My friends still rave about the Prosecco I brought last year. Let me help make your Friendsgiving unforgettable. Bordeaux is one of the world's most popular red blends, made from Cabernet, Cab Franc, and Merlot. It also makes the perfect gift for your picky boss. Having turkey and all the fixings? I suggest an easy-drinking Pinot Noir. For white drinkers, try an unoaked Chardonnay. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers!